0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of 10,000 Roads to Financial Independence. Today, I have one of my first um, encounters with syndicator uh, Arlene Gaza over here. Arlene is a a principal and co-founder of Reeves Equity. Arlene oversees the operation aspect of multifamily portfolio. And Arlene has launched her real estate investing business in 2012. She and her husband began with, began with a small 24-unit property, which they owned and managed. Um, so as a principal in Reeves today, they, are, uh, they have sponsored a total of 17 multifamily acquisitions, taking six properties full cycle. And currently, her multifamily portfolio consists of over 2,700 units as deal sponsors and over $300 million investment in San Antonio. Atlanta, Dallas, Jacksonville, and Houston. Wow, quite impressive resume. Thank you so much, Arlene, for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Eliza. It's great to be on with you. You
0: And to
1: reminisce, I I do remember when you came to San Antonio and you uh, in advance said, hey, can I stop by and see what you guys are doing? And i um, so happy to see your success uh, since that point. I think it was 2019 or 18. I yeah, can't 18, remember.
0: 2018. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Arlie And one of the story I just want to kind of tell um, the audience of how I met Arlie is through a networking event. Essentially, um, it was my first time starting doing the apartment syndication, not even like starting doing, just kind of want to get someone's head around a syndication, And uh, Arlene was like, come on by my office. She's like super welcoming. And so I uh, went to their office in San Antonio at the time. And I think Arlene has already had over thousands of units in her portfolio. And she walked me through like how their operation works and all that. So it's people like her, you know, make um, knowledge transfer possible. And made it possible for us to learn from uh, greater syndicators than we ourselves. So it's really great to kind of see that full circle and have Arlene our show today.
1: Oh, thank you, Eliza. Yeah, you know I believe that somebody helped us when we got started. Helped me uh, learn the ropes, and so I I think it's uh, it's my obligation to help others. I mean, I was blessed, and so I should continue those blessings and carry them forward.
0: That's awesome. And which kind of transition to our first questions in the show oftentimes is, Arlene, when you're thinking back, um, is there a person or incident that was instrumental on shaping the entrepreneur that you are today? Well,
1: I'm going to cheat a little. I'm going to give you the first person, and then I'm going to talk about more recently. So uh, my father. Um, So my father uh, came from a large family, and so as sometimes happens, you know, back in in their times. He only went as far as eighth grade uh, because he needed to work to help the family. And so he worked in oil fuel construction for, you know, quite a few years. um, And he taught himself how to read blueprints and really educated himself so that he could, you know, go rise up in the different construction companies. So he ended up as a, a construction supervisor for some large uh, multinational uh, oil and gas uh, construction companies and what happens in the oil fields is as you may have seen of, over the last year prices go up and down and when prices go down they tend to lay off a lot of people and uh when you have 10 kids which is what
2: wow. you know i have
1: nine siblings Uh, you're always being creative and trying to figure out how do I make sure I can afford to support my family. So he started a construction company uh, on his own uh, in the city we lived at the town we lived in and the neighboring towns, you know, building carports, roofing, uh, all types of construction projects. And so I would see, you know, him in the evenings working on you know, the next project he was going to, to be involved with. And it just impressed me because to come from so little education and to be able to figure it out was just very, very inspiring to me to see that. Yeah. And the second person would be my husband. Uh, he started a property management software company at the age of 26.
2: Wow. And
1: when he came home and said, hey, what do you think if I quit my job and start a company? I I didn't hesitate because I was in banking I had a pretty steady job and we could survive on my income. So I said, sure. I mean, sky's the limit. Now's the time to do it. We didn't have kids. We didn't really have big obligations. And so I watched how he grew that company from just himself and a partner to 100 employees and then sold it uh, in 2007 for a very nice multiple. So he has also been
0: a big inspiration for me. That's amazing. That's amazing. And just kind of made it possible to have the limitless mindset is uh, influence of ob- ob- um, osmosis from other people surrounding you. Um, and yeah. I, I understand that, that your company is a vertically integrated, which means that you do your own management and, and also like kind of have a full control over your house, essentially. Um, can you kind of walk us back to... You know, when you're transitioning from a full-time job, bank, working in banking, into becoming an entrepreneur, what, what kind of goes through your mind and, uh, you know, what the opportunity is like? Yeah. Sure. Well, I, I
1: transitioned in kind of two stages. So the first was uh, when we left Dallas, we moved, lived in Dallas before and moved to San Antonio. I had some clients that I did um, consulting for small businesses on kind of how to grow their businesses and the right target, you know, audience for them, etc. And that came from my background at the bank. And so uh, I did some consulting for a few years, kind of on my own time, I picked the projects that I wanted, and uh, did that until, you know, my husband said, you know, I, he saw the back end of the financials from the clients he had on his software. And he said, multifamily investing is really what I want to do. And so, you know, being very conservative, I said, hold on a minute, (laughs) let me get my arms around this. So as I started looking and reading and uh, we actually joined the apartment association and became apartment managers and certified apartment portfolio supervisors. And so through that process, I really gained a lot of information on risk management, um, really how to drive NOI, you know, what are some of the things you need to know? And so I I really gained a comfort level. So when we started in 2012, I felt more comfortable. And that first one was very interesting. You know, we managed it ourselves. So I did the leasing, the accounting, the marketing, and he did all the rehab and managed the maintenance side of it. So I really felt from that experience that I understood at the ground level, what needed to happen on a property for it to be successful. And, you know, when that property sold at a 370 percent return, I was hooked. I'm like, I don't know of a better way to make, you know, some really great returns. So, yep. uh, from there, we, you know, started buying and we managed our own until we hit about 450 units. Wow. At that point, we got a mentor and he recommended that we try third-party management. So we did. Um, but I think we need too much. Um, so I would find that I would spend, you know, hours after the month was over coming through the GLs, sending emails, what is this, what is that, what are you doing to, you know, boost occupancy, you name it, I had a list. Yeah. And we did that until we hit about a thousand units. Mm-hmm. Once we hit a thousand units, which is what we had been told is kind of a magic number mm-hmm. to have your own management company. So we relaunched, we brought all the properties back in-house at the time and um, hired, our first hire was an accountant.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we, I, I have an HR background, so I could do the hiring. Yeah. Uh, Jacob has an operations background, so he could do a lot of that. So we hired an accountant and then we hired a regional manager. And so those were our first two employees uh, on the management company side. So... You know, as we started buying, we started adding, but we always hired ahead of what we needed. So I basically built an org chart and said, these are all the functions that need to be there to be successful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we plotted and, and determined in what order we would hire people. Wow. So, you know, after the regional, we did hire an HR manager.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we started building the team from there. And that's what I would recommend to anybody that's looking to scale is look at what responsibilities and duties are needed and what is the type of person that you would need to slot in to do that for you. Because as we learned, once we went third party, the the benefit was we were able to grow because we weren't so involved in the business that, you know, we weren't working on the business. We were in the business at the time. So hiring the right staff uh, even if it's a virtual assistant in the beginning that can help you with your database or marketing or whatever it may be, understand what it is you want to do and what it is that you want to hire somebody else to do
0: for you. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's an amazing story. Arlene, you just packed so much information over there in a very specific as well. It really kind of helped me also laid out a roadmap on how our hiring would be. Uh, in terms of because that's usually oftentimes the small business of calming their head on. Um, And can you kind of give me a little bit more um, stories about your first 24-unit deal and um, what kind of went wrong in there and what kind of – and then what you learned from these experiences and to make 375, almost 400% of a total return. How do you do do that? Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Okay, well, you know, the the day we started due diligence, um, the gentleman that owned the property drove up in a green pickup truck. He pulled out a big suitcase from the back of his truck, put it on the hood, opened it up, and there were all these papers. And he said, that's all the documentation for the property. <laughs> so... You know, at that point it was like, okay, uh, we can do this. And so we actually had to create the financials and we were lucky to work with a banker at Wells Fargo that understood this. And so we worked together with him to build the financials to a point that they were comfortable with it. And, you know, the, the rehab uh, budget was key because the, what we knew was that the property had really good bones. We knew that, um, and so it was a matter of determining what were the dollars going to be spent on that would help us drive the revenue.
0: And how did you and learn? So
1: we know is you know curb appeal gets them in your door and then, how did, I'm sorry?
0: Oh, how did you, uh, how did Repeat you- Repeat that, Eliza? Like how did you have that knowledge transitioning from like working the full time, I'm assuming you're still working the full time at the time this is kind of like an investment that you're making. Um, how, how did you n- like know which one, what investment kind of drives the ROI?
1: Well, you know, the, we did have a uh, partner. Uh, we had to bring a partner on because although we had a strong enough balance sheet, we had no experience. So the lender wasn't gonna lend us any money without knowing that somebody on the team knows how to run a property. So we actually had met a gentleman that's, you know, pretty well known in our market. Mm -hmm. And we started a relationship with him, he and his wife, and we said, you know, we're really interested. And he said, when you find your first one, I'll partner with you. So he and his wife invested $20,000 total. Mm -hmm. Um, But what it got us was experience. And so I literally sat with him, my husband and I sat with him and said, okay, what are the nuts and bolts? What are some key things that we need to know to avoid those big mistakes? Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't have any partners other than him. So it wasn't as stressful as today when you're syndicating, you you know, we're very responsible for other people's money. So he walked us through, he shared some of his vendors that he had used on his properties. And that was a huge help. So I would tell anyone listening, really build your network, Uh, find some folks that have done this before, get a mentor, work with a partner that already has experience, because that's going to save you a lot of headaches and a lot of problems. Um, I think the, you know, you asked about challenges. I think the big challenge in the beginning was wrapping our arms around the financials to where we could understand it what we did know was that the property is way below market on rents mm-hmm. and the units were big. There were large units and it was centrally located. So we knew location was good, which is where we start today. Yeah. I start looking at location. I don't even look at numbers right. until we build a prime map. We understand what the schools are like. We understand what is driving jobs in that location. And we, we did that then, and we still do that today, but there's, there's almost a checklist you have to build of questions that you have to answer. And I actually have done that for some of our training is built in an acquisition checklist. Yeah. Here's some questions you need to ask before you even look at making an offer.
0: That's amazing. That's awesome. Um, and Arlene, you're very process driven, as I can see that. <laughs> um, yes. Yes. And then, which is important in I'm building a business. Um, And so tell us a little bit more about your first syndication. How did you decide that you wanted to do syndication? Um, I'm assuming prior to that, you were buying with your own money um, and also kind of going through, um, you know, so the kind of grows a little bit slower, but how did you kind of transition into doing syndication?
1: Sure. So uh, the first syndication we did was 143 units. Um, we'd already bought the 24 unit and then we bought a 28 unit around the corner with our own money and that same partner, you know, that we had on the first one uh, with the idea that we could actually hire, you know, at least part time management staff for the two since they were so close to each other right. um, and give us a little more time. So but when we got to the 143 unit, we knew that we didn't need to exhaust all our cash reserves because we were going to need capital to continue to buy. So um, we we joined a real estate group in San Antonio Mm -hmm. and we started to build our investor database. And from that, we were able to do the first syndication in 2014. So two years after we started, we did our first syndication and it was from individuals we met and established relationships with in that real estate group. And, you know, I will tell you that For people to invest with you, they need to know, like, and trust you. Mm -hmm. So we had to build that trust with these investors over that period of time before we were even comfortable asking them to invest.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Trust is very important. Um, And then in 2014, I remember it's been a while now, um, but I know we had a, a down cycle during 2008, 2009, 2010, I think 2014 things are kind of looking up and up but then maybe people are still kind of a little bit worried about going down cycle. Like what are some conversations you have with your investors that kind of make them feel comfortable to invest and trust their money with you, um, you know, into your presentation?
1: Right, I think what helps us is that my husband did have a business background. um, So he had run a successful business before. So that was important to share with folks. And then from my background, I had been a lender, I had managed an HR team nationwide, I managed a marketing team nationwide. And so we were able to show how all of those skills translated into this new business. And having those two smaller properties, we were able to show experience. I mean, that's always important uh, to anyone that's looking to invest with you is what is your track record, Mm -hmm. that's key. And so those are some some things that we initially shared about us. But what we also needed to share from the multifamily side is that, you know, the value of these properties, as you know, is strictly driven by the income they generate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, changing the mindset from kind of the stock and bonds mentality of, you know, investing in that, this was an alternative investment Mm -hmm. that we could show it's a physical asset, you know people need a place to live. It's in that time, it was workforce housing. And what is it that's driving this or jobs and population growth. And so pulling all that data, I'm a big data person. I'm constantly reading reports about a market, a submarket, because I don't think it just, you should just look at the big market overall, like example, San Antonio, those properties were in Balcones Heights, which is a actually a small little town within the San Antonio uh, MSA. So sharing all that data really gets investors comfortable with what are they investing in. And you should also show them stress the property, stress the numbers. Mm-hmm. How low can occupancy go before there's an issue in paying your bills and paying the mortgage? And we, we set a standard of always knowing that number so that You could share that with investors and for ourselves. I mean, we invest our own money into every transaction and we want to understand, you know, what are the potential risks Mm -hmm. and how do you minimize? How do you de-risk a deal? Mm
0: -hmm. And those are the things that we share. Got it, got it. Um, And let's kind of switch gear a little bit. Actually, I have one more question to ask about this. Now, owning a small property, building a track record is a great way. I love that because you're putting your money first, taking all that risk first before you bring the investors in. I think it's a great roadmap. Um, but compared to small property that you own and the large property you own, you what is the verdict? Is bigger really better? Well, I would tell you that
1: we have determined 150 to 250 is kind of our sweet spot in terms of the number of units. Uh, we do own a, a much larger property, 344 units. And the way I look at it is it's like a small town, right? You've got to constantly be feeding traffic into that, um, that little town, that property, because uh, if you look at the average turnover in the apartment industry, it's 50%. Mm-hmm. So if you look at 50% of your units potentially turnover every year, you have to have that machine built on, you know, what do you put into the unit so you minimize your turnover cost how do you staff it appropriately so that you're constantly getting the best of the demographic in that area mm-hmm. and so i would say that with your bigger properties you just need to be a little better at the underwriting in terms of really understanding what is going what the minimum numbers are that are going to make that property successful because mm-hmm. it's a constant i mean it's 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 a lot of work but it's also very rewarding i mean the property has has done well uh, we're looking at possibly selling it soon. Um, our only challenge is that prepayment penalty that yes. we know a lot of properties have, but it's a hot market. So we really are looking at some options for the property. And it's done well, but I probably would never buy over 400 units. I just think that's a, a big endeavor.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's that's amazing feedback to know that um, don't wanna buy over a 400. Now that's that's interesting because people always say, don't do a less than 100 when you first start to uh, do a deal because you can use on-site and et cetera. So it's very interesting to, to know that there's actually a limit on like don't go over 400 uh, in terms <laughs> of what you kind of take on. What would you say is a good size property to buy for someone kind of just started into syndication? I would say, you
1: know, 75 to 100 units. I think anytime you get, I think the number's over 60, you can at least have part-time management. Um, But I think it also depends on whether somebody is going to hire a third party. Uh, It's a little more expensive um, on a percentage basis to pay a management company. So just make sure you build that into your underwriting. You know, it's not uncommon to have four to six, even 7% uh, management fees. So as long as you build that in, Uh, I think for your first one, you do want help, Uh, either a partner that knows what they're doing or a third-party management company that specializes in that size of an asset. Yeah. And, you know, going back to my, the previous comment on 400 units, very doable, but I think you have to have a really large organization. Uh, We're getting there. We're not quite there, but I do think you have to really look at how many resources do you have to, you know, put towards an asset.
2: Mm hmm.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So it's like personnel. And then we know it's not easy in the property management side of the business. The attrition is a, is a definitely a problem over there. Um, so Arlene, tell us a little bit more about um, I'm going to ask a few questions on, you know, vertical integrations, how you manage that. So thank you so much for sharing us your kind of hiring roadmap over there. Um, what do you think is the most essential positions for someone's kind of looking into the property management? You mentioned about getting a regional, which is kind of your supervising over on your site, um, and then obviously getting an HR manager and an accounting, and you have backgrounds in HRs and et cetera. Um, so if you were to kind of do it all again, uh, looking back at what you did there, um, the sequence of like the people... That you put in place for someone who owns a thousand units and more.
1: Right. So, you know, I would still hire the accountant first because I do think the numbers and managing your receivables and your payables, that's your your income inflow and income outflow. And so to me, I would still start with that person uh, because it's very detailed information and everybody wants reporting, right? The lender wants reporting. Your investors deserve, you know, good reporting. And so I think accounting to me, whether it's somebody that's full time or you outsource it to a bookkeeping firm or an accounting firm that will do that task for you, I think that's super critical. Um, The regional manager we brought on because a regional should be able to hire too, right? Because they've hired a lot of people in their experience. So that's why that was number two for us mm-hmm. um, because they could serve dual purposes mm-hmm. until we were really big enough to need an HR manager where you're managing benefits and, you know, yeah. you know, leave and all kinds of, you know, HR related uh, items. And so that's, that's why we chose that order of hiring um, because those were key elements. I mean, the the people run your business. I, you know, we were in Houston a few weeks ago and saw some on-site folks. We, we visit our properties at least once a month, if not more. If a property's in rehab, Jacob and I personally will visit them because we wanna make sure that we put eyes on the assets and that we can tell our investors that we put our eyes on the assets and that the rehab is going well or whatever's happening at the property. So, um, so that's important. The regional can do that for you and report in, but there's nothing like, you know, seeing it yourself. So yes. I think those are,
0: those are key things. And then in terms of cost efficiency, once you kind of switched over to the vertical integration model, um, what benefits does your investor get? well
1: I think the biggest thing is that we control every piece of it I mean the buck stops here good or bad it stops here Um, and you know what I found here's an example Uh, we decided to bring all the utility billing in-house and what we found is that on the expense side paying for utilities uh, we dropped it I have 20 percent Wow. Because we were making sure that we monitored the bills that were coming in, that mm-hmm. they were accurate, that didn't have a spike from one month to another mm-hmm. without an explanation. And so that was a key piece of the expense side of it. On the income side, we increased the capture rate almost 15%. Wow. What happens with utility billing is people move in and out of a property. If the service that's doing it for you isn't on top of it, you might miss a month's worth of billing. In right. our case, no, our, our VP of operations supervises that with our utility, utility billing um, coordinator. And so they're watching that piece of it. So on the expense side, when we take over a property, we're able to reduce controllable expenses 10 to 15% just by renegotiating contracts sometimes even with the same vendors that the seller was using.
2: Yeah.
1: So, you know, when you one property, I think we took it from about a $3,900 in controllable expenses, right? No insurance or taxes, because that's kind of beyond everyone's control sometimes. And we dropped it to 2,800. So even on a six cap, that's an $800,000 immediate increase in value to that property. Yeah. So for us, we believe that us doing it, we're watching every penny, we're watching every dollar that comes in or goes out of the property, and it's more work. But I sleep better at night knowing that we're doing that.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, that is a lot of work, <laughs> <laughs> especially for uh, you know seventeen properties. Um, now, you guys have done a lot of full cycle deal. Very impressive. Um, what would you tell someone um, or what would you tell investors on things that you would want to take a note uh, on exiting a property? Uh, because everybody is always focused on the acquisition. Yeah, some people will focus on the operation a little bit more, but then pretty much no one talks about what happens when you sell a property. Um, because you have so much experience, can you share with us what should be, someone be expecting
2: when they're exiting a deal?
1: Sure. Well, I, I think one, one thing that's important is your debt. Mm -hmm. What type of debt do you select for that property based on your whole period? Mm -hmm. You know, when we uh, were buying, um, no one expected rates to ever drop, right? They just expected them to go up. And so we have fixed rate financing agency financing Mm -hmm. on our, you know, first, acquisitions because that's what was widely recommended. Yeah. And once the pandemic hit and rates just bottomed out, mm-hmm. you know, the prepayment penalties on these properties got really really high. So that really made your consideration of an exit much more difficult because then you're trying to sell on a loan assumption basis or you're trying to get a much higher all cash offer mm-hmm. to absorb that prepayment penalty. Yeah. And, you know, as this all started to happen, I actually was fortunate to speak to one of the top guys at Pensford, which is the company that provides the interest rate caps uh, for floating rate loans. Mm-hmm. And they had done a study over the last 20 years, and floating rate debt generated a much better return. Mm-hmm. And all that, looking at all those properties that had traded, than fixed rate debt. Wow. You know, in in today's environment, it's a big discussion. It's a big debate. Do you put fixed rate debt on it because it's so low or do you float? And I think it just depends on your exit. You know, are you planning to hold, you know, five, seven years, then maybe fixed rate may work, but run your analysis both ways. And that's what we do today is look at it both fixed and floating. Uh, that's key. I would say the second thing is when you're when you're considering selling, start a year before that, before your target sales date. Yeah. Really start looking at your occupancy. Really start looking at your expenses. Um, and those two things I think are are key: the occupancy and your net rental income are super important because that's going to drive the purchase price of a property. I mean, that's probably the biggest contributor to NOI. Mm-hmm. And you know, start to make sure you might have more of a balance of less rent growth but higher occupancy. It's it's looking at what's the right balance with those two things mm-hmm. and start doing that a year out because remember they're going to a T12. Mm-hmm. Now, your T3, your last three months before you put a property for sale are more critical,
2: then- but
1: they will still look at your trend over a 12-month period, yeah. and they'll look at your occupancy trend over a 12-month period. Mm-hmm. So start to look at those things a year out, even before you would consider selling.
0: Yeah, and then just to kind of, for a listener who are not very familiar, who are not like a property like Arlene are, uh, T3 and t 5 which stands for the um, kind of like a, the, the, financials for a property, the expenses and then the income, uh, statement for the last 12 months for 12 and the last three months, um, in terms of that financials. Just want to make sure that we, our listener knows what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> which is great. Um, and, um, and Arlene, like what, what is next? And the other thing I noticed is that you started in San Antonio which is really kind of your local market and it's great for vertical integration. But then now you have actually expanded your business into Houston. So how do you do that with a vertically integrated company? Because oftentimes people kind of get a little code into one area and thinking that they couldn't get out of other markets.
1: Sure. Well, our strategy is to really be very market focused. So we, we did that with San Antonio. We didn't buy anywhere else until we had built enough scale to really have all the layers in place at the, at the management company. Uh, so, you know, as we started to look at Houston, I looked at the, all the data. Again, what is job growth? What is population growth? What does the de- renter demographic look like? So San Antonio, 51% of the households rent. Houston, that number is 58%. Wow. So I knew there were a lot of renters in that market. Houston just has a lot more inventory. I mean, whereas San Antonio may have seven, 800 properties, Houston's got, you know, four or five times that in multifamily. So I knew the inventory was much better. And looking at the market demographics, they are number one in population growth in Houston. Yeah. So as we started to look at Houston, we said, okay, how do we go into the to that market? What are we going to need? So our VP of operations that we hired um, manages managed over 14,000 units across the U.S. And that she also had a big presence in Houston. So she knew the Houston market well. Mm. So the directive was hire the strongest community director for that first property that could really kind of serve as the catalyst for hiring additional as we added to the portfolio. So we did that in August of 2019. But I started in January of 2019, traveling to Houston, driving markets, meeting brokers. And what I did was I asked the Houston brokers that we, I mean, the San Antonio brokers that I'd worked with to make an introduction to the Houston brokers. Yeah. Because then I was able to, to make a lot of headway. Mm-hmm. Other than waiting for them to get to know us, they kind of had an endorsement, you know, for us coming in the gate. And so we did that. I mean, I spent probably an hour with one broker and she walked me through all of the sub markets around Houston, yeah. telling me what areas she would recommend, what areas were growing, what areas she would not recommend. And so from that experience, you know, I had a lot of data and then I went to several e- economics, you know, folks that were presenting in Houston. I went to those events to really understand the market and the submarkets. The biggest piece was the submarkets, And so from that, we said, OK, we know enough about the market. We like it. It behaves very similar to San Antonio. It's just a whole lot bigger. Right. And we had the broker relationships in place. And so we just started sharing with them what we were looking for with the understanding that as we added properties for example today we have 4 uh, we'll close on our fifth one next month wow. but we added an area manager mm-hmm. so not quite big enough for a regional yeah but an area manager who manages a property and oversees the other 3 oh. but we hired very strong managers at those other 3 mm-hmm. so that they're very they're more self sufficient and As we grow, we will eventually add another regional into that market. But right now, we've got really good coverage
0: with the area manager. That's amazing. That's the first time I've heard about an area manager. That's a great insight. Every time I talk to you, I just learn so much more about operations. The investor's mind at ease because they know um, they're really working with someone who knows the ins and outs of the business very well so that they can do nothing and then receive the passive income. Um, and uh, you mentioned that you also passive invest as well, um, which is oftentimes a lot of some cases don't do it because they are very much in control. You know, it's more the control factor. They don't invest in their own deals and et cetera. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the thought behind, you know, you also passive invest as well? Sure.
1: Well, it's also very strategic. Uh, we are you know, have been interested in the Dallas-Fort Worth market. And so, you know, two of the properties we've invested are in Dallas-Fort Worth. And it was to really gain an understanding of that market, to see the the numbers from an actual property operation standpoint. Uh, Atlanta, that was another market that we were interested in. So we passively invested in a property there. Uh, Jacksonville, Florida is the other property that we invested in again, because there was interest in learning more about that market. And you know, honestly, a lot of it is IRA dollars because I can't invest those in our own deals. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was twofold, strategic to learn a market and two, allowed oh. me to invest my IRA dollars.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. That's awesome. Um, and so what's next, Arlene? I know you guys own almost 3,000 units now. Um, and expanding into different markets. You mentioned there's a few other markets that you're interested in. What does the next you know, five year look like for you? Five, Five, three, nine years, whatever long-term means for you, <laughs> midterm.
1: Well, you know, right now, as you said, we're almost at 3,000 units. We will be at 3,000 when we close the, the next Houston property. So our, our big goal uh, is to be at a billion dollars in assets
0: uh, within five years. Nice. Yeah. And then so what's the why that's driving
2: that?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked that. Um, Our daughter uh, recently joined our company. She's a portfolio analyst. Uh, She'd worked for a company in Miami that was a multifamily company uh, for a year and a half. And she decided to join us, which I'm very happy about. Um, And then our son is studying real estate finance and development. So he wants to build them from the ground up. So You know, for us, it's a legacy business. Luckily, they both are very interested in the company. Um, They worked with us in high school. Uh, Our daughter was in leasing and our son was in maintenance and leasing. Uh, So they've grown up with the business. And so our why is let's, we wanna build something big that they can take over and build even bigger.
0: Nice, nice, that's awesome. Um, and then you just answer my last question, usually over here, which is, uh, how are you helping your children grow financial literacy and then helping them encourage them to be financially literate? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, one of the things that helped early on is my husband and I would always talk a little bit about work. We'd ask the kids, you know, at dinner, we were big on having dinner together every night. We'd ask them how they, their day was, you know, what was the highlight of your day? And then we would share highlights of our work day, which was very business related. Mm -hmm. And you don't think they're listening sometimes, but they're really listening. So, you know, it was planted as a seed very early on. And then working at the properties, they really learned, you know, the value of what we were doing. Uh, When our daughter was in leasing, she came home one day and she said, mom, there was a lady that came in. She's probably, you know, 35, she was, our daughter was probably 16 or 17 at the time. She said, and she told me she couldn't you know pay her rent. She said, so I sat down with her, found out how much money she you know, made, what her car payment was and her rent. And I showed her that she could afford her rent. Yeah. She just would have to, you know, lay off of eating out and some of that. So, you know, she learned to show somebody a budget without really realizing that's what she was doing. So, Um, That helped. And then we invested some other college money in multifamily. And so when they started to see the distribution checks, which they were not allowed to spend, (laughs) they had to save them, they they saw the value of how their money can grow. Um, I I had our daughter recently um, do her schedule of real estate owned from the properties that we've invested for them. And she was amazed. Yeah. you know, at how it had grown over time.
0: Yeah, yeah. In a short period of time too, sometimes it can go pretty fast. Um, and, uh, you know, and yeah. one last question is like, how, how do you actually then being a busy businesswoman, I think it's a really unique position over here. Um, how do you balance a work life, you know, essentially spending time with the family and doing business? Because we know when you're starting up a business and building that intuition. It takes a lot of long hours, um, and and how? What what's your kind of like couple of tricks to make sure you know spend enough time with family, uh, or not necessarily? Or mindset to reach that work back life. It's not necessarily always people think about you know life, but it's it's a balance for every person. Yeah.
1: yeah, and I think the balance is different for everyone, right? I I think for for me it was understanding when I needed to be available for the kids. Mm -hmm. And so it might mean that I get up early and take care of some things. Um, Our son ran cross country. So by five o'clock, he was leaving the house. Yeah. And I got up and I, I made him breakfast every morning for him to take with him. So when his run was over, he would have something to eat. And our husband would, my husband would make lunch uh, at night and pack it and leave it ready for them. So those were some small things, but again, I made it a priority to be at their events, which is why I love this business. You can, you're not tied to a desk. You don't have to ask for permission. You can be at their events. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for kids to see you there and supporting them. And then dinner.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I would make sure I was home by 5.30 at the latest so that I would have dinner for them. It wasn't always home cooked, just depended on how my day went, but it was just sitting together and having that conversation that I thought was very, very important. Now, after they went to bed at nine, mm-hmm. I, I might stay up for a few hours doing some work, uh, but I made sure that the time they needed me, I was available. And, you know, we, I got a really beautiful letter from our daughter when she graduated from college or from high school thanking me for being at her events thanking me for you know sitting with her while she was doing her homework taking her to church i mean those were things that were important that you don't realize are important until after they're a little older and can communicate that to you so okay. i just think it's 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 finding the priorities and making them priorities mm-hmm. and you'll always find time for everything else
0: yeah yeah that's amazing that's amazing except for sleep obviously over there <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'll sleep when I'm 70. (laughs) (laughs) Not even. Um, And Arlene, so this is such an amazing session. I learned so much myself, even from this uh, interview. Thank you so much. And how does people reach out to you? How can people find you? How can people find more about REITs Equity? I believe you guys also do bus tours, like showing properties and et cetera for investors so they can really see uh, kind of what's going on on the ground. How can people kind of get involved there?
1: Sure. Uh, Two great ways. You can go to our website, reep, R-E-E-P, equity.com, or directly send an email to invest at REAP equity.com. And we have an investor relations coordinator, Rebecca, who will promptly respond to emails. um, Or if you directly want to speak to me, she's happy to set up a call with me and I can share what we're working on. But um our investors are so very important to us uh they make things happen and so we always make ourselves available to speak to them
0: that's awesome that's awesome well thank you so much Arlene for spending the time with me today and giving us all these great go nuggets definitely worthwhile for me even to go back and listen to some of these as well again um thank you so much today.
1: Thank you, Eliza. It was awesome to, to speak to you again and get to see you. And congratulations on your great success as a mom, as that woman that's balancing life. So congratulations.
0: I have something to look forward to. I have someone Romama, to look forward to.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, reach out anytime. Thank
0: you. <laughs>